Hello, and welcome to the Let It Matter podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wolf. Here at Let It Matter, we seek to make space for and honor what matters to us as individuals, as communities, and as beloved children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 to cast our cares on God because God cares for us. That tells me that God cares about what we care about. In their song of the same title, the group Johnny Swim offers this invitation. If it matters, let it matter. So that's what we're going to do. I invite you to join me for the next 30 to 45 minutes as we make space for, honor, celebrate, or lament, and as we name, what matters. Okay, hello and welcome. I am thankful for you guys. I'm thankful you're here today on the Let It Matter podcast. I am joined by New Testament scholar, professor, and author Nijay Gupta to discuss women, the Bible, the early church, and how to interpret the seeming contradictions in Paul's ministry versus his letters. Um, Let me introduce Dr. Gupta to you. Dr. Nijay Gupta is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and is an author, scholar, and Bible translator. His most recent book is called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. He recently co-edited the second edition of the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters and has written and contributed to numerous other books, commentaries, and academic articles in theological journals. He lives in California. Um, I want to tell you guys a little bit about some some behind the scenes here on the Let It Matter podcast. Um, When I finished uh, my stint, my few months stint as the guest co-host on Where Do We Go From Here last year in December, um, for those who don't know, that is... um, I, I, it's a podcast that focuses a lot on um, p- on purity culture, growing up in evangelicalism, and uh, and then detangling those things from where we're at currently. Um, and so, just by the nature of the conversations and the topics, um, I spent a lot of time, even after leaving evangelicalism, still sort of in that world and in those conversations and. Um, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, um, when I started this podcast, I, uh, I decided to take the Schitt's Creek approach, which, uh, if you know anything about Schitt's Creek, they decided early on, rather than have it be a town where there is homophobia and they have to, um, confront it and it's a part of their real lives and stuff, they decided that in this town, uh, there would be no such thing as homophobia. It just wouldn't exist. Um, and I think that's what makes the show resonate with so many people and be such a safe place because um, because they just decided to stop defending their right to exist and be happy and be in love and, and kiss on TV and do everything a straight relationship would do on TV. Um, and so I took that approach, which is to say... Um, I had early on decided I wasn't going to do episodes making a case for LGBTQ plus affirmation or making a case for egalitarian uh, ism and, and, you know, women's uh, roles in the church being, uh, you know, what I believe them to be, which is at any level the same as a man. Um, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do episodes where um, 
I could just decide that that's a foregone conclusion for me. Um, It wasn't always, but it is now. And so I'd rather have episodes about the implications of those things and and go deeper into, um, okay, if that's the case, uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are the, uh, you know, various ways we need to think through that? Um, and so this episode is actually an anomaly. I wasn't planning to do uh, an episode on this topic. However, Dr. Nijay Gupta had this book come out, Tell Her Story. And for those who don't know, um, I have spent the last several years, uh, probably since 2019 or 2018, um, just repeatedly in deep study and also teaching, writing and teaching a series on women in the Bible. And so this is a, a subject that I'm very familiar with. I thought I, I mean, I had, I knew every single woman on the pages of the scriptures and, um, had dug deep into their stories and, and yet his book was still, there were surprising things about it. It was uh, the most surprising thing for me was, and I tell him this in the interview in a second, but was that he is um, that most books I have read and resources I've read on the topic were either written by women making a case for egalitarianism, or they were written by men seeking to suppress women uh, or subjugate women. I haven't read. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I haven't read a ton of resources written by men making a case for egalitarianism just solely off the scriptures, not off of a, um, you know, bleeding heart or anything like that. So, um, it it was, it's a brilliant book. It's wonderful. It gives so much insight and context and, um, best practices for interpretation and stuff. Um, and so I highly recommend it for those of you who um, are just interested in how, you know, maybe you want to just learn to sort of interpret the Gospels and the epistles in a more clear way, given their context, or if this is a topic that you really are still sort of wrestling through, I I highly recommend it. I do also want to really quick note the audio quality on our actual interview um, section. There was something going on with um, the host server and I almost thought I lost Nijay's entire audio track um, and would have had to just scrap this episode entirely Um, and hallelujah they were able to troubleshoot it and get me a backup file of his audio Um, but when I combined those two it just is a lesser quality audio because it's a backup file and not the high quality one so I apologize for that bear with us Um, I mean you can still hear everything perfectly it just kind of sounds a little bit like we're like in a really echoey space but um, I did the best I could to edit that and hopefully it will be okay now let's get into the interview Um, I, first of all, am so thankful to have you here on the Let It Matter podcast. So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So at this point in the episode, I have given your bio and told listeners sort of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I would love it if you could tell us sort of what made you write this book in particular with this subject matter. Because as a woman who I have devoted probably the last, I don't know, five or six years of my own spiritual and theological study to women in scripture, um, most of the resources I find are either written by women 
or they're written by men seeking to suppress women. (laughs) And you are neither. And so I'd love for you to just share how you sort of came to this, this project. Yeah, there are a few kind of motivations, you know, one going back to my own journey, um, going back more than 20 years, um, grew, grew up in a very traditional church that had only male pastors, only male preachers, and women were definitely involved and, and were, were celebrated, but it wasn't, um, you know, having a woman on the elder board was would be unthinkable. Sure. Um, same thing in college, went to a, a secular college involved in parachurch ministries, and it was, you know, again, the buck stops with men, um, only men can be directors and things like that i didn't think much of it but i went to seminary and i was really into john piper and wayne grudem at the time who were kind of really getting going with the council for biblical manhood and womanhood and the gospel coalition all of that and i just i used to uh i spent eight years at the village church with matt chandler so boy did we use a lot of that curriculum (laughs) right and I, i just i didn't know there was another evangelical or confessional viewpoint i just thought you had have Piper and Grudem here and then way over there somewhere far left you have Mainline and they're off in La La Land you know um, far away from the Bible and it just had never I'd never encountered um, someone who believed in kind of the full authority of scripture and um, you know je- you know taking the scripture seriously that also supported women in ministry yeah. until I went to seminary and then I started to be introduced to the scholarship of people like Gordon Fee and Linda Belleville and Walt Kaiser and Ben Witherington. And I started to realize, Mm. wow, this isn't a conservative liberal issue in the sense that there's this dividing line. And if you're conservative or you believe in the Bible, you must X, Y, and Z. It was really like study the issue and and figure things out. And I started to meet Pentecostals and Wesleyans that are doctrinally conservative, but socially progressive, Mm -hmm. specifically in this area of women and women in ministry. And the, the tradition I ended up in is actually Free Methodist, which has supported women pastors for over 100 years. And so um, that was kind of eye-opening. A second issue was my wife, who I met in seminary. She was a master's student at Master Divinity. And we were kind of sorting out the issue together and trying to figure out what we believed. And we did all the study and came to a different view than we started with. Mm. Um, In the end, supporting women uh, pastors. And my wife is a pastor. Mm. Um, And probably, you know, what took me then another 15 years to actually write the book was um i'd say one of the main issues was in 2019 john MacArthur was at a conference and someone asked him what are two words that you think of when it when you hear the name beth moore mm-hmm. who's a you know, popular bible teacher that was once upon a time in the southern baptist world and he said go home and that meant probably a few different things it meant don't criticize the sbc the southern baptists it meant um kind of shut up Mm -hmm. i think is kind of what i meant and then i think you know somewhere lurking in the background is this idea that women should be home with the kids and their places in the home yeah and um i'm I'm reading that out of macarthur's general theology and that kind of gospel coalition general theology and what strikes me about the new testament you know my day job is i write biblical commentaries on colossians and first second thessalonians and i've done work all over the new testament and what i realize is number one ministry uh 
public ministry was done in the home. Churches mm-hmm. met in homes. Mm-hmm. And number two, women are often found outside of homes, whether it's in prison or mm-hmm. Priscilla and Aquila traveling from one city to the next to plant churches or the women that traveled with Jesus or people like Deborah who sat on the judicial, executive, legislative, spiritual seat of Israel, mm-hmm. on and on and on. If you read your Bible, women are at home. Men are at home. Mm-hmm. Women are out. Men are out. And basically, the people of God are called to wherever their gifts and callings lead them. So I would say that was the issue. I thought I got to write on this. I got yeah. I got to write to 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 clear the air about what women are actually doing in Scripture. And you know, I grew up not knowing the names of these great women leaders mm-hmm. of the early church. And I really wanted to set the record straight and say, these women are there. Open your Bibles. I'm not adding things. I'm not talking about the Apocrypha. Right. I'm not talking about Paul and Tecla. I'm talking about women that are actually in your Bible. Just look them up. Yes. And they did amazing things that we all need to know about. Oh, I could weep. Um, yeah, I, that is, um, I, I had the same sort of upbringing and even uh, Deborah is someone I have spent a lot of time on as well. And mm-hmm. even on this podcast and my teachings and my writing and stuff, um, because there was this, <laughs> this dumb idea that she was this anomaly, that she was only in power right. because there were no other men. So even her existence there was still about the other men. Um, and, and it's just, it's just an egregious reading of the text and um, as if God lacked for resources, you know, poor God. Um, And so, uh, so I am, I'm so thankful that you did write this book. I just, for those who are listening, I told you before we got on here, it is, um, if it is a new concept or subject to you, uh, it's paradigm shifting. If it's not new to you, but, um, it's refreshing even just to, like I said because you're a man who wrote it so sure. in terms of like the stakes you don't have skin in the game in terms of um, you're vying for power or you want to be heard or something like right. that um, and so that's really powerful you op- you start the, the the book you look at Deborah first but then you quickly kind of you go into the Genesis 1 and 3 of it all um, mm-hmm. and I I would love to move right there just um, because the most sort of common arguments I have heard, at least for complementarianism, um, one of them is the, quote, created order, right? Um, the words used right. as translated as helper or help meet, um, the fall, the curses, all that stuff. Can you maybe just give us, for those listening, some helpful context and insights for interpreting those sort of three big arguments, created order, help meet, and uh, the fall? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Genesis 1, um, you know, created order doesn't mean a whole lot because humans are created last, and yet they're created as the climax of creation and the caretakers and rulers over creation. So in that sense, created order doesn't mean a whole lot. When it comes to um, Genesis 2, which is a kind of retelling of Scripture from another perspective, um, some people have called it a synoptic, you know, quote, mm-hmm. quote, synoptic, where it complements it's the same but different. Mm-hmm. And there, yes, Adam is created first, but what's blindingly clear is that he is incomplete. 
yeah. that he actually can't get the job done by himself. Mm-hmm. And so what's made obvious in Genesis 2 is he's imperfect and she is needed to actually help him. Mm-hmm. Now, the language of help um, is often Sorry. been misunderstood. Real quick, just before you go to help, um, sure. what are you, I'm curious your thoughts on, uh, there's a, um, some scholarship I've read recently, Dr. Um, Will Gaffney, several you know, womanist interpretives, uh, interpretations talk about how the first what we would call Adam is really just a, sort of a Hebrew play on words for earthling, that it was a gendered, that there's not even gendered language for this human being until uh, the end of Genesis two. And so that when God, in, in, instead of the word rib, it's side, it's basically splitting the yeah. human in two. And therefore the created order is both of both male and female at the same time from the agendered sort of earthling. Um, I'm curious, have you heard that or what your thoughts about that are? I, I haven't heard that specific argument. I've heard things like that before. I wouldn't necessarily speculate about those things, but what I would say is in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. there's no sense of who was created first. It's that they were created in two forms. That's right, yeah. Male and female. And then in Genesis 2, then you have this more specific narrative uh, with Adam. Um, and it, it is difficult for translators to know when to translate it human and when to translate it Adam mm-hmm. with a capital A. There's ambiguity there. Um, but, you know, going, going on to the helper thing, yeah. um, you know, the language of helper there doesn't actually tell you whether they're a lesser helper or a greater helper. And the common argument is is, you know, the most frequent use of this term is for the Lord as helper. Mm. So, you know, we would never call the Lord a lesser than helper. Sure. The, 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 the crux of the issue is um, Adam can't fulfill his mission alone. Um, and it doesn't actually say what percentage of the work Eve is supposed mm-hmm. to do. The whole idea is that they're meant to partner in the garden. And even then, it's not like he rakes and she works, you know, on food yeah. or whatever, answers emails. <laughs> it's this idea that they are co-rulers and co-guardians um, mm-hmm. of the Garden of Eden, of creation. Mm. And so I think a lot of what I was trying to do in those chapters was to say what's actually here versus what you've heard in Sunday school and yes. um, and and what what are the re, you know what are what's open to interpretation mm-hmm. like you know Genesis 3 is where I think we get the most tripped up mm-hmm. where we have that verse you know her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her mm-hmm. and and people sometimes argue he's supposed to rule over her mm-hmm. or people argue um, you know she's she's trying to be sub- subversive and he's trying to be good. Um, but these are kind of prophetic curses in the sense that God is saying, here's how the bad things you have done will continue to snowball mm-hmm. and lead to chaos on earth, which we see next with Cain and Abel. Right. Um, and so they're both meant to be bad. I think her desire is not good desire because the same term is used for Cain desiring to kill mm-hmm. Uh, sin desiring to take over Cain and, and, and inspire him to kill Abel. Uh, I think her desire will be kind of our bad, our bad motives when we want to harm the other person. Yeah. And it says he'll rule over her. Nowhere else in scripture is it said that the man should rule over mm-hmm. the woman as a good thing. Right. And so uh, any sense of 
power being used to control or to uh, um, make someone subservient is a part of the fall. So we need to know that anything that's going to create division, that's going to create power dynamics that are yes. unhealthy, yeah. is not is not what God wants. And and so we need to just put as far as a distance as we can any of those kinds of notions. I I appreciate that um, because one of the things I I have wondered about that text is whether God is saying this is how I want it to be now because you messed up or this is what is this is the this is what's going to happen I'm just telling you I'm not saying I want it for you um but like you know whenever God um comes to them and says who told you that you were naked what's what'd you do you know Adam says it was her she says it was him hierarchy and blame mm -hmm. has already been introduced and so God to for God to say hierarchy is going to be a part of the human a part of human relationships now and um and power dynamics and patriarchy and you know things like that um it, to me it feels like god telling the truth about what's coming that work is really hard <laughs> you know what i mean childbirth mm. is really painful there is hierarchy and patriarchy and stuff um and i but i am i i've never seen that as well, you know, the last few years, I haven't seen that as this is how God wants it to be for all time, for all mankind, especially after Jesus came, especially after the what we would say the reversal of the curses. Absolutely. I mean, what you see in Genesis 3, I, I refer to it rather than the fall. I like to refer to it as the undoing, mm. because what God tried to do in chapters one and two is foster harmony mm -hmm and healthy relationship and partnership. And this is precisely what's being unraveled and undone yeah. in chapter three. And we see this pattern throughout scripture where God will basically say, if you want to sin in this way, I'm going to show you what it's like to take this down that road. And so Romans chapter one, God gave them over yeah. to, yeah. right. The and choose you know, this day, life James, or death, all those, uh, this is what death looks like. This is what life absolutely, like. yeah. you know, God, abandoning them to their vices mm -hmm. and showing them the consequences of their actions and the consequence of the actions is chaos mm -hmm. in their relationships right so it's not prescriptive as much as descriptive of what's to come mm -hmm. as you know i kind of think it like smoke the whole pack like you get caught smoking <laughs> and your parents say, i'm gonna make you smoke the whole pack yeah. um or i'm gonna let you be sick you know from this and not help you yeah. and god's not doing that to be mean he's doing that to teach them a lesson mm -hmm. about the consequences of their actions mm. um thank you for that that's really really helpful <laughs> moving into sort of the new testament times the roman uh, mm -hmm. empire what are some things that we like as readers should we keep in mind at, in terms of context the political and religious landscape the surrounding cultures these sort of things that really will matter and help interpret uh things like jesus's disciples the women in his ministry the early church gatherings and writings you know and just women's worlds in general at this time whether they're you know part of the christian faith or not yeah a lot of that chapter is just really ground clearing because in popular christian um discourse we use a lot of inaccuracies mm -hmm. there are a lot of inaccuracies in the ways that we talk about 
the New Testament times, the the early uh, Roman Empire. Um, so I felt like I needed to do a whole lot of kind of documentary kind of stuff. Yeah. To make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. So just for example, when people say, oh, the Bible says women can't be pastors. It doesn't actually say that mm-hmm. and doesn't really talk about pastors. So we need to actually talk about uh, what scripture says about that. Or, you know, women should be a home. Well, we need to understand the home, how the home operated, what women did and didn't do. Or maybe there are people that think, oh, women shouldn't work. Well, women worked in those times. Uh, we have lots of examples of that. Or women shouldn't be politicians. There were women in the political realm. Women shouldn't be business people. There were women in the business realm. So a lot of that chapter is actually when people say things like, um, I, I wish we could go back to, you know, the biblical times and, and live then. I think they're actually saying they want to live in the 1950s because they don't actually know what the biblical times were like. And they imagine that the biblical times were just the 1950s without cars and airplanes or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and and there, it is true that the Roman world was patriarchal, but that doesn't mean women were resigned to being at home doing domestic duties actually a lot of wealthier people had servants and slaves that did all of the chores and they did other things Mm -hmm. and so we a lot of that is just really trying to catch people up so women for example even though it was a patriarchal world um, women weren't unable to exercise power and influence Um, often women of high social class and this is hard for Americans to understand because we don't have social class the way that they did back then what family you were born into we would think kind of zip code or postcode envy you know where you lived what job your your uh, husband had could put you into a high tier of influence where you could exercise a lot a lot of power through your family name whether you are a man or a woman and um, so we see women exercising great power but there are also women of what we think of as lower class who were just great savvy business women and they could kind of rise in wealth and influence and power and exercise that kind of influence now what does that have to do with christianity well you have a woman like lydia who is a businesswoman uh in philippi according to the book of acts mm-hmm. And she becomes a believer through Paul's ministry, and uh, her whole household becomes Christian. And the fact that they become Christian through her means that she's the head of the household. So I kind of write mm-hmm. about some of these cultural dynamics, some of these laws. And then the apostles go on these adventures and go to jail, and then when they get out, they're told to leave. But first they go back to Lydia's house. Why? Because believers are already gathering there. Mm-hmm. She becomes a hub for them meeting. That's a big deal. That means she's an important person. And then we end up seeing a lot of women in the Philippian church, which means it is a church with a lot of women leaders like Yodia and Syntyche, Mm -hmm. who are mentioned in Philippians chapter four, probably through Lydia. Um, And so we have to get it out of our heads, what I call a little house on the prairie mentality about the Roman world as if, you know, the men are out doing important things and the women are inside doing domestic duties. Mm-hmm. Um, that might have been true in rural areas, but in urban areas where the apostles often operated, yeah. um, women are actually instrumental in society and could have great influence. And what we see in early Christianity is 
they were movers and shakers. Now, men were there in more numbers, but women could exercise great influence. And the apostles didn't say, oh, you need to get married or, hey, you need to submit to your husband. They're saying, hey, come along. You seem to be really good at this. One of the... um the things I guess uh, when I first started to notice these things in Luke 8 this idea that women bankrolled Jesus's ministry right that's not um and also I mean just really quickly in terms of being home and domestic duties they didn't have the grocery store and Uber Eats and a laundry service and a maid service that's survival if it even if they were home doing domestic duties (laughs) you know what I mean um but at this but you know on the flip side you've got a woman that's wealthy, right? Like Joanna, whose husband is in a, has a lot of power in Herod's Herod's court. Is that right? Um, mm. And and yet he hasn't told her you have to stay home. She's just <laughs> following this itinerant preacher, um, you know. And and so I, I'm curious, though, on your perspective of this is is there. Is it valid to say there were very likely more women than are recorded because of who the authors of these writings are? You know, even Josephus and extra biblical stuff. Um, is there sort of an erasure thing that can happen where it's it's only logical to say, you know, who was in the upper room? Was it just 12 men? Probably right. not. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we talk about the feeding of the multitudes, you know, the 5,000, they're counting men mm-hmm. and women were there. We can just assume based on like what you said about Luke chapter eight. Um, you know, it's very interesting when you compare the Gospels, um, the level of interest and attention to women. Yes. John seems to be interested in women with his emphasis on the Samaritan woman and Mary Magdalene. Um, Matthew less so. Matthew's less interested in women. Luke is the most interested and uh, in fact mary's song of praise in chapter one is the longest space given to a woman in any of the gospels but it's also um the longest space given to any character other than jesus one of the longest speeches given to any character other than jesus in the gospels and um so what's interesting is we we know more about mary's theology than joseph's theology yeah because we have this yeah. this very long song theological song from mary that's mm-hmm. interesting in and of itself so yeah erasure uh, you know i don't think any of it's intentional we also don't even know what happens to joseph you know i'm sorry for, for cutting off we you don't. know joseph disappears from the story yeah. after jesus is 12 or something and mary is there you know to the, through the bitter end I, I it's probably safe to assume he past but we but we don't know and that's that you're right that is really um even that that the care was taken to go and report this pregnant girl is going to see her pregnant aunt and this is this worshipful Mm -hmm. experience they have and here's this theology they share there's no men in the story and it doesn't really move the plot along it's just uh you know you guys needed to know this because the what these women are doing and saying and experiencing is vital and part of uh, the message and story of Jesus. 
And Luke has a special interest in what scholars call the great reversal, where you're going to turn the kingdom upside down and really emphasize and highlight the the marginalized, the least of these. Yes. And so Luke is very interested in the poor. Luke is very interested uh, in the, you know, the outcast and he's very interested in women. Mm -hmm. And so you have parables about women. One of my favorite parables in Luke is a very short one, the parable of the lost coin. And the, the things that we know about this woman is, she owns her own money and she knows how to throw a party. <laughs> Those are the only two things Excellent. we know about her. Yeah. Uh, so it's really fascinating. She She's responsible for this money mm-hmm. and she's responsible for inviting amount, guests right? to her celebration. I, I don't remember the exact details, but it's kind of funny. Like he's the, you know, the counterpart parable is the, sh- the, the good shepherd, the, the lost sheep. Yeah. So, you know, a man and his dirty, stinky sheep and a woman who has money. I mean, <laughs> yes. those are the, those are the two things that Luke tells us about yeah. like a couple. And, and it's so um, funny because the parallels always made between the shepherd and God and the father in the prodigal son story and God, I have almost never heard right. it taught that the woman is, is representative of God there as well. Right. Um, she's just the parable. You know? Yeah, um, that's, that's true. Yeah. The coin, is lost but the but the woman is just a coincidental to the story right um but but you know luke is luke is fascinated with you know luke does pull the curtain back and show you these women we we would know very little about the women in jesus ministry if it weren't for luke and he does tell us that women traveled with jesus um he tells us the most about mary magdalene at least yeah. the details um, Martha john Bethany, has some there that the friendship end. that they seem to just just friends absolutely not, <laughs> you know. yeah and you know the, the, and actually luke tells us a couple chapters later luke 10 mm-hmm. about the 70 that were sent out mm. and i always assume the 70 are men you know yeah. male male pairs but many theologians think that they're actually husband-wife pairs because mm. you have people like Andronicus and Junia mentioned in Romans, yeah. and you have Priscilla and Aquila. You have all these couples, these Jewish couples, mm-hmm. um, and it would make sense, given Luke's interests, that the pairs were husband-and-wife pairs rather than men and men. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I've, I think uh, I've always thought of it as... Even with the apostles and knowing that they were going to be sent on mission, um, Mm -hmm. the the danger, if that was women, especially single women, um, but, you know, to be going and traveling around and performing these miracles and signs, they'd be burned as witches. I know that's uh, anachronistic, but, you know, that's uh, that I, I, you know, for as much as we see Jesus in his teachings like the teaching on divorce, clearly trying to protect women. Um, Mm I, I have thought, you know, in my, in my times where I'm like, why, why I know they weren't all men, but why are the named ones men? Why did that get the most press? You know, all that. Uh, why is Jesus a man even? And, Mm. uh, and I, you know, there's, that's what I meant by the sort of surrounding culture um, it, within the Jewish people, as well as the Romans and the Greeks and, um, and Africa and things like that, that, that there would be a very real uh, danger of exposure if it is just these, you know, singular women going out and trying to to do these things. Does that, does that, does that ring true or possible to you? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, I have two daughters and I, and a son, and I worry even in twenty twenty three, I worry more about my daughter's yeah uh, safety than my son. Just you know, so think about this before right. body cams and you know <laughs> right. geolocating people and Me all too. of that. Yeah, um, for sure, for sure, that would have been a concern. One thing I find fascinating though is in the Gospel of John, you know, each count of the resurrection is is a little bit different, but in the Gospel of John, you have Jesus sending Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. uh, out to tell the other disciples the language he uses for her and sending her out is apostleship language. Um, and I always thought, okay, the women were sent with the resurrection testimony because the men weren't there. But if they actually read the Gospel of John, the scene right before that scene is where John and Peter have the foot race uh, to the tomb. Yeah. So why did Jesus appear mm. to Mary and not to Peter and John? That's interesting. I haven't ever thought it. About literally that. happened right before, right before. And had he just wanted. So, and Jesus, you know, and the angels, I mean, they can go anywhere. Right. So why are they appearing to people at the tomb when they can literally, as they already do in John and Luke? appear to the actual disciples in Galilee. Why why do they appear at the tomb? There's something to say about validating these women, about challenging these women's faith, about um, recognizing these women's, the fact that they showed up while the men were hiding. Um, I think there's some kind of like reward there. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I believe I'm writing a series on resurrection right now. So I was just in all these texts. Mm -hmm. I think in all four gospels, the first to either discover the empty tomb or receive the news that he's risen are women. I don't think that varies. I think the the names vary and what they do after varies. Um, But the first recipients of that knowledge, as well as the woman at the well being the first recipient and John, at least of the knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. and that specific woman being samaritan and you know with all of her all of her baggage and yeah. stuff like that um so okay so then that leads me well to our next question because this is uh just the bane of my existence um so it, in the sort of maybe more surface level level or like company line type debates that happen between complementarians and egalitarians, there are those who look to women like Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary Magdalene as proof that women were active in leadership and preaching and ministry and therefore can and should be today. And there are those who quote from 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 as proof that women can't then and can't now. Um could you talk us through how to interpret these quote supposed contradictions? I I don't believe they're contradictions, but um, provide some helpful, maybe just scholarly insight into interpreting mm-hmm. those two texts in the epistles, um, which seem to be anathema to Paul's ministry when you actually read about yeah. it in in other places. Yeah, well, you put your finger on one of the key things that we should say, which is you shouldn't hang any major doctrine or teaching of the church on one or two verses or even one or two passages. Mm. On a big issue like gender, leadership, you need to look at the whole of Scripture. Yes, explicit verses matter, and they matter a lot. But, you know, whether it's violence or creation care or any big issue, eschatology, mm-hmm. baptism, forms of communion, we should base these on the whole of Scripture and what we call biblical theology mm-hmm. rather than 
kind of what we think of as a linchpin text that tells me everything I need to know, so to speak. So the way I explain this, you know, when I'm when I'm talking about with students mm-hmm. is imagine you're a crime scene investigator, you show up to a crime scene. Um you know, you don't just say, "Oh, look, a bloody knife," and you then you leave. Um, yeah. You having the having the murder weapon is great. Like that's what you want. That's what you're hoping for. But you actually examine the entire scene because what if there's another weapon, or what if that weapon was planted, mm-hmm. or what if the person has an alibi? OJ's other or, glove. Or you know, and there's <laughs> yeah. there's so yeah, that's right. There's so many factors, so you don't stop with. Oh, look, there's something that looks like the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. You want to study everything in the room as carefully as possible. And then you create uh, a scenario that's going to explain everything at the scene and not just leveraging one thing. So when we have a first Timothy two, you can't stop and say, okay, that does it. Women can't be teachers or preachers. You have to also say, how can you have a first Timothy two that says, I don't allow women to teach or I would translate it domineer. We can come back to that Mm -hmm. domineer over men. But then you also have Deborah who is uh, a a regent, a governor um, for all intents and purposes, the spiritual leader Mm -hmm. over the entire people of God, you know, like a Pope kind of person. (laughs) Like how can you have, how can you have those things? Oh, that's an exception. Well, an exception creates yeah. creates space for it happening. Even wasn't it Lois and, and Eunice, <clears throat> Timothy's mother and grandmother? Is it Timothy? Like, yeah. how are you yeah, writing Timothy, to yeah. Timothy to say this when he's received the faith <laughs> from women? Yeah, yeah, from these people, yeah. absolutely. And Jesus received the faith in many ways from Mary. Yeah. And if you compare Mary's song of praise to the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's mm-hmm. Sermon on the Plain, you're going to see a lot of resonances. I mean, Jesus is. His mother's son. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, so uh, the first thing I do yeah. is I try to say you have to reconcile um, these prohibition texts that say women can't with these other texts that show women doing what I consider front lines ministry mm-hmm. um, and teaching ministry. And, you know, Junie is a good example of that where she in Romans 16, seven is referred to as noteworthy among the apostles. Now there's some debate about that. We can get into that, mm-hmm. but I, th- I think most scholars and most translations are persuaded mm-hmm. that uh, she is considered one of the best apostles of her time. Mm-hmm. And if she's an apostle, which is seen as kind of, you know, one of the most yeah. respected levels of leadership. How can how can women be barred from anything else? Mm. Um, I just met with a church recently uh, about this, and they're going through this, and that was my argument. Yeah. If if Deborah is a judge and Junia is an apostle, <laughs> then it stands to reason anything below that on the scale of power. Yeah would be allowed because you have to answer the question. So what I tell these churches is you have to answer the anthropological question. If we say women can't do X, Y, and Z, there has to be a rationale. Mm -hmm. It can't just be the Bible says so. The Bible says a lot of things. And for the things it says or prohibits, we need to have some sort of ethical rationale for it. Right. Or else it'd be easy to justify doing bad things based on what the Bible says, like violence. Um, And so when it comes to women, if we if we take First Timothy two at quote unquote face value, they're going to say, oh, women shouldn't be pastors or they shouldn't teach doctrine because they're gullible. Then we have to raise the question, uh, are all women gullible? Mm. 
And if that's true, then why would you put the Savior Jesus into the hands of Mary, knowing that eventually Joseph would die? Mm. Why would you let Andronicus and Junia do front lines apostolic ministry? Yeah. If she can't be trusted, declare the resurrection uh, and then, to and women. Then if they're so gullible that they could be talked out of it by the disbelieving apostles, <gasps> that's right. Yeah. And then you have you know Piper and Grudem that say, "Oh, we can't let women teach men, but they can teach women and children." And my question would be: If it's about gullibility, then why would we let them teach anybody? <laughs> like, right. if if they're if they're if a, if a man just objectively mm-hmm. just ontologically just it's in their dna is better on the day you know every day that they should do all the teaching maybe it's like there aren't that enough men to go around okay telecast them Mm -hmm. put them on youtube but if it's a deficiency in the actual dna of women which i think is impossible Mm -hmm. but if if there is a deficiency my question would be, why are we letting women do anything? They should now, I hope nobody just jumped no, onto no. the <laughs> podcast to hear me say that. What I mean is, to me, that is unreasonable yes. because this was the argument that was most popularly used before the civil rights era. Mm-hmm. And with the civil rights era, we have the rise of great women academics, women as presidents of universities, women mm-hmm. holding the highest chairs, women senators, women presidents of yeah. other countries, um, all of that where you just can't say, oh, men are smarter, men are, you know, you just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And even now we have a great crisis of male leadership where they are proving themselves to to be um, incapable of, of sustaining leadership uh, themselves and specifically on their own. And so I would just say with first timothy 2 um it's either a limited situation to ephesus which is what i think it is mm-hmm. uh or it's a it's a universal and if it's universal then it's going to contradict all kinds of other parts of scripture that show women like deborah being very successful mm-hmm. in the highest levels of leadership that would have included teaching him mean, if you're a judge you're going to be teaching the people she's a prophet, she's a prophet too. right yeah. so she has double the qualifications voice of god to the people of god is a female voice she's a spokesperson for god yes. absolutely and and she sings this song of song of victory mm-hmm. in judges five which is a theological song she's teaching doctrine mm-hmm. is what she's doing yeah. mary's song of praise read it luke chapter yeah. one verses four sixty five is teaching doctrine read it it's one of the most influential yes. uh teachings of the gospel in the whole bible hannah so uh, i would I mean, say hannah's regularly referred to especially by jewish teachers rabbis and leaders as a prophet um yeah uh, and her song again her, song. her own prayer yes. is profound yeah. theologically profound um what do you give any weight to or stock to the people who would say so, for example, First Timothy 2, it's like verse 12 or something, and then three verses later it says women are saved in childbearing, and that there are several other aspects of that letter that may indicate Paul's authorship is not even the case. Um, and then, you know, in First Corinthians 14, uh, it's got that footnote that's like, we didn't know really where to put this. It was kind of a side yeah. margin note There's or some something. And so in both of those places, those are not super clear, um, just like, like a narrative right. form would be where there is there's not it's not trying to teach it's just saying this is who was there this is what happened um and even in salutations that's a different type of writing you know than didactic mm-hmm. and so 
Do you put any weight in that in terms of like the authorship and the textual criticism and scribes over time and stuff like that? Not, not a lot. Um, you know, when it comes to First Corinthians, even though that passage has some funny things going on in terms of where it appears in early manuscripts, um, it's never missing. And that's okay. that's crucial to me. If it was missing, then I would say very well could have been added. added later by somebody else because it has it has it has an overbearing tone to it that is suspicious yeah. but i'm kind of like play the ball where it drops and so um this is what we have in first corinthians well, and a direct Whether contradiction from, from paul or not three chapters earlier right about women chapter praying and 11 yeah uh, you know these are private letters. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous theologian, yeah. who wrote all these personal letters while he was in prison, not knowing they would eventually be published. You know, <laughs> right. I have it on my bookshelf. Right. And so Paul didn't know his letters would be published and used by billions of Christians. And he's saying sometimes very private things. And that doesn't mean they're not authoritative, but it means he's not explaining exactly what's going on because he's writing just to one group that has an insider conversation with him and so in that sense we are trying to piece together what should we glean from this very private conversation and i would say what's consistent in a lot of these texts first corinthians 11 14 first timothy 2 is not so much the silence absolute silencing or suppression of women but really the desire for harmony i do mm -hmm. think in some of these situations um, the fact that women did not have as strong of an education as men, generally speaking, mm -hmm. and and then also within the church, means that they were easy prey for false teaching. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted, if you were an outside teacher wanting to get a church to buy into a certain, you know, different approach, yeah, you might talk to the women because they're networked together, mm -hmm. and you know you might be able to persuade them mm -hmm. about it. Um, and it's not just women. I mean, in high school, I bought in, I got, I got caught up in the whole King James only thing. <laughs> I heard a street preacher. He bought me chicken nuggets at Wendy's and I bought the whole thing because Bless. I was just, I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand Bible translations. I didn't understand. Yeah. And so I remember just me and my friends were completely freaked out. Like we got throwaway or NIV. Yeah. Um, thankfully, uh, our youth pastor came to the rescue. I've been baptized four times because each time I was convinced the time before didn't stick so uh i get that yeah yeah so i think in these situations what we're seeing uh, is some kind of gender war and and you know we experience this throughout time as well and paul is saying uh he wants harmony and he wants people to um to learn as much as they can mm -hmm. before trying to be teachers of other people mm -hmm. We know in the context of 1 Timothy, there is false teaching involved, and the false yeah. teaching is specifically preying upon women. That needs to be factored into the situation. Mm -hmm. I am, uh, I think what you mentioned earlier about partnership and what you just said now about harmony um because i i don't want to give the impression that i think what what that this means instead is the reverse which is matriarchy i don't think men should sit down and right. shut up and are and are of no value or um are of lesser mental capability although sometimes i feel like that um i <laughs> you know i think about like the wars that have been started throughout the world 
they've almost all, at least in yeah. soup, you know, at least in kind of recent history, almost all been started by men. Um, and and I th- and I wonder though, um, what partnership would look like? What if we had a president that or leaders of our country that were men and women, a board or yeah. a yeah. diverse? You know, I'm not proposing a new <laughs> form of government, but. Um, I think partnership rather than a, an imbalance of one or the other. Um, and that seems what, like what Paul is doing. You mentioned in your book, just the um, Romans 16, the list of, mm-hmm. of all yeah. these people he calls coworkers. And there's a buttload of <laughs> women, sorry for lack of yeah. a better word. Yeah. Yeah. And these are, you know, these are what we think of as professional ministry leaders, Mary of Rome, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and obviously people we've mentioned, Phoebe, mm-hmm. Junia, Priscilla, and uh, Persis, mm-hmm. and the mother of Rufus, the sister of Nereus. And what's interesting is Paul's in, is in Corinth. He's never actually visited these Christians in Rome. So my question is, how does he know these women? How does he know so much about them? And some of them, it may be reputation, but for some of them, he says, she was a mother to me as well, meaning that he has met some of them. And the implication is, and I hope that this kind of will stick with people, they travel for ministry. And they've actually been to Corinth or they've been to Ephesus. You know, they're not just sort of doing ministry in their home or right around their home. But like you were kind of saying earlier, they're putting their necks on the line. He actually says that about Priscilla and Aquila. They actually put their put their lives on the line for all the, all the Gentiles owe a debt of gratitude. I think the best example of um, men and women doing leadership and ministry together is Priscilla and Aquila because they're moving from city to city starting churches they work together they work in business but they also work in ministry and i think what we learn from the book of acts is she's more gifted in teaching (laughs) yeah and maybe he's more gifted on the business end they both do ministry but she um she kind of takes the lead in teaching apollos and and kind of filling in the gaps of his understanding of the gospel and these are some of paul's closest confidants there's nobody that that Paul spent more time yeah. with, except maybe Timothy, than Priscilla and Aquila. He probably lived with them for a period mm-hmm. of time. And Paul doesn't pull punches, so if he had a problem with their business or their operating model, I can promise he would have said in, in some yeah. sort of tirade form uh, that this is this is not okay. And rather, you know, he's like, "Yeah, come with me. Let's go." Um, I know we need to. I need to let you go. The last quick question i want to ask is do you have this your book is called tell her story um so i would love if you could just share something quick that was meaningful to you about a woman in scripture as you first started to dig into these things uh maybe it was somebody more obscure or that you know or less familiar with um can you just uh, tell her story for a second yeah, you know, one of the ones that I just hadn't known before was a woman named Damaris, and she's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 17. Paul's giving his famous speech on, at Mars Hill, where he's talking to these Greek philosophers um, about the gospel, and they don't understand what he's <laughs> talking about. They don't particularly like what he's saying, but there is this small group that is interested and kind of walks up to him afterwards, and specifically they mention uh, two people, uh, D- Dionysius, the Athenian 
uh, and uh, sorry, Dionysius the Aragopite, and um, and Damaris the Athenian, and so Damaris is a woman. I wouldn't have known that until I looked it up. But the question is, what's she doing in this kind of gentleman's club, this philosophical yeah. club? And you know, scholars like Craig Keener say. Um, they were not common, but there were female philosophers. And here we have an intelligent, um, bold female philosopher who shows up at this thing, receives the gospel, mm-hmm. and then talks to Paul. Um, there's a scholar um, named Richard Bauckham who has this theory that when a story in the Gospels or Acts goes out of its way to name a person, mm-hmm. it's because that person became famous. Uh. Uh, you know, they're like name dropping book of acts is narrating things in the thirties and forties, but it was published at the end of the yeah. first century, let's say 50 years later. And maybe Damaris became kind of a legend. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she's a kind of, um, Meryl Streep <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of early Echelon. Christianity. And so, the, Oh, they're like, Oh, that was the origin story of Damaris. Uh-huh. Like they, you know, yeah. it, it, it makes sense. Well, after why does Paul, why did, why does Luke randomly name some of these people? Yeah. Um, and, and when he could have just said some people became believers like he does in many yeah. other stories and I like Bauckham's theory that these people are named because they were known mm-hmm. in early Christianity that's cool to think yeah. that Damaris is out there as kind of a matriarch oh man I loved that conversation so much. I hope you did too. I hope it was helpful and a good resource. My thanks again to Nijay Gupta for joining me today. You can find him on Twitter at Nijay K Gupta. That's N-I-J-A-Y, the letter K and G-U-P-T-A. On Instagram at Nijay.Gupta or on his blog at patheos.com forward slash blogs forward slash crux sola that's c-r-u-x-s-o-l-a i will link to all of these in the show notes as well i do want to just take a second to remind you about the let it matter podcast patreon community we would love to have you join us there for as little as four dollars a month partners get exclusive content like additional episodes um bible um bible study and spiritual formation teachings and access to monthly matterings which is a private partners only zoom call with me that builds community as we dive deeper into the recent episode topics to get instant access to all of these partner perks as well as the past ones that have already been posted head over to patreon.com forward slash let it matter pod or let it matter.com forward slash podcast join me next week as we continue to make space for honor and name what matters And now, according to our tradition as we close out, I offer you this blessing from Shannon K. Evans' book, Feminist Prayers for My Daughter. The prayer is called, Foreseeing Women Lead in Church. I have adapted some of the language to fit our context. Let's pray. O defender of marginalized voices, how can we believe in equality if it is not practiced in the places we worship a God of justice? How can we grow into our God-given purpose while knowing our most sacred spaces have glass ceilings overhead? How can the next generations have courage to follow your call if they don't see other women doing it too? Fill our churches and religious spaces with such women. Put such women in decision-making seats there. Give such women vote and voice and vocation. 
When our knees quake, when we are infantilized, when we are refused, when we are mocked, may we step into our calling anyway. Amen.